welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Thanks for joining us. And before we started recording, Katie said she's tired already. So, Katie, why are you so tired? What's happening in Iowa these days? Well, I'm working on a very large crochet project um, for someone for Christmas. It's not any of our listeners, but I'm not going to say who it's for. Um, anyway, Friday night, I uh, after the kids fell asleep... And Jim went to bed. I made the mistake of sitting down with a really good audiobook and my crochet. And the next time I thought about it, it was literally three o'clock in the morning. And because it was a That's some serious crafting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it was a weekend. My kids were, of course, up at six AM. And then with the time change this morning, I'm just <laughs> dragging a a little um yeah. A little bit, yeah. So that is an exciting Friday night in the uh, Palmer household, is what you're saying. Woo. Yeah, no, it really was, actually. Um, the guys just finished picking corn and started combining. And the deer hunters have been out. Apparently, our, our friend's daughter comes out and hunts with her dad. She's a senior in high school this year. She's been hunting out here for six or seven years, I want to say. Saw a nice buck uh, yesterday morning. Saturday morning. Today is Sunday. Okay. Um, Shot him and all she found was a tuft of hair. So one of the other neighbors has been watching a nice buck all summer and the buck got hit by a car the morning they went out to find him. Oh, no. To shoot him. So they did still get the rack. They called the sheriff and got a a, uh, salvage tag, I think is what it is actually called. Um. So they still got the rack, but they didn't get the fun of killing it themselves. And they didn't get any meat because... Right, and someone else got the damage on the car. Yeah, yeah. somebody else got to pay for it, so I guess that's good. Uh, yeah, so that's about it. And how was Halloween in your household? Do people go out? Were people feeling better? Uh, yes, the boy child stopped puking in time. And my friend Susie, thank you, Susie. Um, came through in an emergency with the costume because he had still been changing his mind as to what he wanted to be. And somehow after a whole weekend of him puking on me, I hadn't really thought about the fact that if he felt better, he would need a costume. Uh, so we got a, a Spider-Man costume borrowed and we went down the hill to the neighbor's house and they had, uh, they had called from the Dollar General in town to ask what kind of candy my kids liked. And in the background, all I could hear was the neighbor's husband saying, they like beef jerky and PBR, which uh, would be Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, which I assume he was thinking would be for us. So they spent probably $10 at Dollar Tree, and my kids lucked out with like whole bags of goldfish crackers and big bags of candy. And then we went trick-or-treating around five houses maybe um it snowed that morning so 
And then we went up to the grandparents. So they probably got more candy than they would have if we had actually, like, really gone trick-or-treating. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes a few strategic houses is just as good as as a whole bunch. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, in a real moment of genius, their teachers said no costumes at school, which I really deeply appreciate because I don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with it. Nobody wants to deal with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, yeah, and then no one has fine. to make that emergency trip back to the school to pick up the piece of the costume that got forgotten that yeah. day. Or... And nobody has to deal with the kindergartner who can't get... The sadness over something getting ripped or destroyed. Yeah, and nobody has to deal with the kid who can't get out of their costume to go potty or back in their costume by themselves or that gets face paint in their eyes or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Everybody's yeah. happier this way. Um, And I would imagine that with the diversity in town there's probably quite a few students who do not um i don't want to say celebrate halloween but who do not observe it and you know it's easier to just not sure yeah so uh how are things at your place arlene yeah wear orange and black things are good yeah we did to halloween so the older one is away at school and number two is in high school now and he has decided that he's too old. Not too old to eat all of the candy that came home, but too old to go trick-or-treating, which is fair. I also eat a lot of the candy that came home. So this was the first year that kids actually went trick-or-treating with friends, which was kind of a new milestone for us. So we don't live all that far from town and my husband and I ended up having to milk on uh, Halloween night. So uh, number three and number four both went with different friends into town. And then when we were done milking and got cleaned up and showered and I threw on a cow costume because it was warm and cozy and it was cold out on Halloween. And I like to dress up too. So we went in and met up with both kids at, on different streets, grabbed them, and then made a quick tour to the retirement home where my husband's grandmother lives. And then did just a few houses on our street. And I think they probably got as much on our road as they did in their their time in town. But there was a lot of treats. Um, but that's fine. That's what it's about. And everyone had a good night. Although the, my youngest was complaining about sore legs by the end. So I guess he uh, he had met his limit in terms of, of walking walking around town. And since then, we've been working on, it's not quite a spreadsheet, Katie knows how I love spreadsheets, but we have a whole schedule for this coming week because it's Royal Winter Fair Week. And so different people need to be in different places, including my husband and myself. And um, we have people that work for us and their daughter is in 4-H and our daughter's in 4-H. And so we're trying to figure out how to get as many people to Toronto to actually go watch the kids show. And then later on in the week is the National Holstein Show which we, for the first time, have some heifers showing in. So it's an exciting week for everybody, but the work still needs to get done. So we have a a whole schedule of kid care and who's doing chores and all that kind of stuff. And then, as Katie said, today's Sunday. I'm supposed to leave tomorrow morning right after I'm done milking, and the youngest has pink eye. So that's just something that wasn't on the spreadsheet, but we're working it out. I think he'll probably only have to miss a day of school as long as I can get those drops into his eyes over the course of today and maybe one more shot tomorrow morning. And my father-in-law is going to watch him and also watch the 4-H show on the live stream at the same time tomorrow morning. 
because um, my mother-in-law was going to get them on the bus, but then she had other plans in the morning. So it's all going to work out. But I just love how in parenting and farming, just when you think everything is is organized, that something comes along to let you know mm-hmm. that you're I, uh, not in control. I was going to say you could just threaten him with treating pink eye the way we do in mm-hmm. cattle, uh, you know, with a, a shot into the eye and then an eye patch glued to his face for a week. See how that goes over, you know, if he's resisting the drops. I think the the spreadsheet needing is part of the the drive behind doing the podcast for me, too, because, you know, other folks, even just having kids is enough complication to doing things with your life. But when other folks are talking about, you know, getting somebody to feed their cat and we're like, yeah, that's that's cute. Like, it is hard to find a cat sitter, don't get me wrong. But when you're talking about, you know, a hundred cows who need to be dealt with for hours a day by somebody with skill um that's a whole nother whole nother level of things yeah yeah exactly yeah plus the kids that are left behind and yeah all the all the logistics of family and farm life are uh, a whole different level for sure so if you're following our social media this week stay tuned for uh, updates from the raw winter fair and if you're going to be in toronto come say hi I guess our episode will be coming out on Thursday, so it'll be mostly over. But if you're there on Friday and you happen to listen, you can uh, come say hi. Well, and Arlene, I saw that your family is now like spokesmodeling for a company there on the on the Facebooks. So that was exciting. It was more exciting before I realized that it was a semen company. That kind of <laughs> a little awkward. But, but that is a lovely picture of your daughter and your husband. Not technically models. Yeah, but... Uh... A friend of ours who's a photographer submitted a picture of my daughter and my husband from the Royal last year. So CMEX used it in uh, one of their ads this week. So that was pretty cool. It is cool. a very nice photo. Add that to me being on the cover of Progressive Dairy and we're we're basically famous. Yeah. Cover, cover girls all around. I was just glad that this week I went to a class and someone asked if I was okay with having my picture taken before they did it to put on social media for the company, which was really, really appreciated to be given the opportunity to say, no, I'd rather not. And they went and picked people who were happy to have their picture taken, which made everybody happy. So as someone who doesn't like being photographed, I appreciate that. Yes, that's true. It's nice to be given the option. It's always better to give people choices. Unless it's your kids, then you probably shouldn't. Yes, that's a good point. All right, should we introduce our guest for the week? I suppose so. Raven, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and to us. So we always ask, what are you growing? So for farmers, that's crops and livestock, but it also can be kids and careers and businesses and all kinds of other stuff. So Raven, what are you growing? What am I growing? I'm growing two small toddler boys, um, a bunch of free-range chickens, a colony of cats, um, and an assortment of vegetables, Eggplants, pumpkins, um, olena, which is turmeric. Um, that's a Hawaiian word for it. What else do I have growing? Lots of tomatoes, carrots, green beans, um, guava trees, orange trees, ulu trees, which is breadfruit, mangoes, um, limes, all types of citrus, all kinds of things we have growing over here. And what ages are the little people in your house? 
Um, so my youngest, Hapu'u, is going to be two in December, and my oldest, Ha'akea, will be four in December. Wow, that is... They're really little people, and for, for our listeners, uh, we're recording at Raven's time at four in the morning because she wanted to do it when it was quiet, so... She gets extra stars for uh, for getting up early to talk to us. So Katie and I are both people who live in cold climates, and I've never been to Hawaii. I don't know if Katie has, but are you able to grow everything all year? Do you kind of have seasonality still, or what does it look like in terms of like planting and growing things where there's no real winter? It depends. So every Hawaiian island, but especially Maui, there are like, Gosh, I can't remember the exact amount. I think like 12 or so, like mini subclimates. So depending on which part of the island you're on, it's a different climate. Um, typically, you can grow almost anything year round. Um, if you're higher elevations, if you're like up in Kula, like up on Haleakala, I don't know if you guys kind of, if you want to look like at a map of Maui after, so it makes more sense. But um it's what we call upcountry, but up on Haleakala, up in the mountain and the higher elevation, um, they can grow a lot more like herbs and lettuces and things like that because it's cooler climate up there, typically all year round. Um, where I am, I'm closer to the sea level, like I can see the ocean from my porch. Um, so like I have some dill growing right now, it's dying, it's not like you know, some different herbs just don't do well. Um, but pretty much anything you can grow year round because it is close to summer um, from, I would say, October to January is more of our rainy season. Um, so we do get a little bit more rain during that season. So I can kind of get away with growing some different herbs. Um, but pretty much anything will grow year round. Much different than Ontario and Iowa, right, Katie? I have a lime tree, Arlene. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. In it's... your house. Oh, well, now it's out in the front yard right now. I mean, it's it's the very <laughs> yeah. beginning of September as we're recording this, and it was 43 degrees Fahrenheit last night, so I'll be bringing it in as soon as I rig up enough supplementary light bulbs to keep it happy, because I tried a lime tree before, and it died very quickly from the lack of light in Iowa in the winter. It just kind of went <laughs> very sad, but um, yeah, no, no. No limes, no turmeric, no breadfruit, no coffee, no pineapples, no, no nothing, really. Cats, we have cats and we have chickens. <laughs> yeah. So that's, we have that in common. <laughs> um, so where did you grow up and what's your, how did you end up at this place in your life with the, with the farming and the kids and the, the, how did you get to here? Give us a rundown of the last however many years. Yeah, so I was originally born on the island of Oahu um, in Kahulu, which is kind of like the country part of Oahu. Um, and then when I was a toddler, I moved to California, which is where my mom is originally from. Um, my parents got divorced. And then when I was 14, um, almost 15, I moved to Maui. Um, so almost half my life, because I'm 28, I'll be 29 in a few months, I've lived on Maui. Um, but I definitely come from a background of farming. Um, so my dad's side of the family is from New Mexico. They've been ranchers, um, the Spanish part and then the indigenous part, obviously go far enough back in anyone's, um, ancestry, you'll find people that were farming because that's how you survive growing food. Um, 
And then even on my mom's side, my grandpa was a dairy farmer. So there's a lot of farming in my history. Um, and then my other half, his family, they raised pigs. Um, so their last name is Pu'a'a, which means pig. <laughs> and then it got changed to that because they were pig farmers. And then his family also, like many families in Hawaii, um, were kalu farmers. So taro, which is um, the starchy, the, if you've ever gone to like a luau, they have that purple stuff. They talk about poi. Um, so they grew that. So we have some of that growing in our backyard, too, some kalu. Um, and that's actually my son Ha'akea is named after a variety of colors. It's a white variety. So it actually comes in different colors, but the most popular colors that you see is purple. Um, but it comes in any color from white, which is a Ha'akea, um, to like a golden yellow, purple, gray color. It comes in a few different colors. Um, so yeah, I've always loved farming and growing stuff. And my other half as well grew up that way. Um, so when we started dating and then I moved in with him on his family's land, it kind of was just they were always planting stuff um so we both just have that in common and our kids really love to be outside eating dirt planting stuff or pretending to help planting stuff um and then I really wanted to be able to quit my job and stay home with the kids so that's why I had started Kia Farm the last half of both of my children's names put together um and then, yeah, it's kind of just grown from there, social media a little bit. And that's how I got here to where I am today. I like Arlene. I feel like the the Raven is the the language that is spoken indigenously in Hawaii is called Hawaiian. Is that correct? Or is there, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's another word for it when you're not speaking English. It's It's not that early here, but I'm obviously not quite awake yet. <laughs> Yeah, so Olelo Hawaii is the Hawaiian language. Um, but with m- most people that are born and raised in Hawaii will speak pidgin, um, which comes from back in the day when they had the plantations and there were, you know, like Chinese, Korean, Filipino, Hawaiian, Portuguese, Japanese, Puerto Rican, everything mixed together. They couldn't communicate. And so that's how pidgin has a mix of everyone's language all together um so that's what most people in hawaii will speak pidgin i was just thinking about what an advantage that is for naming your kids after crops because i was thinking arlene what it would be like if we had named our kids after our our local crops <laughs> that i would have Corn. you know number two dent and uh <laughs> berkshire yorkshire hamp I guess it's like it doesn't yeah. sound as poetic yeah. as it does yes. in in a different language. So there's definitely yes an advantage. So that. yeah, when it comes to your farm, Raven, are you at this point doing farmers markets or direct marketing, or is it more about feeding your family and kind of replacing your your non farm income and and sustaining your family that way? What does it look like for for the farm aspect of yeah, kind of all of that. So I do sell produce on Maui Hub, which is a local online farmer's market that we have here on Maui um, that they started during COVID to really kind of boost our local economy um, because most most businesses unfortunately rely directly on tourism, which, you know, you've seen recently with the fires and stuff, it really has affected everybody if there aren't any tourists. And even during COVID, it was really affecting people. So it was born in 2020, um, but it's really cool. So you go on there, they do all the marketing for you, which is really nice within the community. You, every Friday, list what you have available. The market opens online Saturday, I think like 12 p.m. 
Um, and then it closes Monday night, 11.59 p.m. Everyone puts their orders in. You get emailed a list of what you need to go harvest. And then you drop it off and they distribute it for you. Um, and then they, they send you either a check or a direct deposit. So it's really streamlined. It makes it a lot easier. Um, but we definitely eat a lot of what we grow as well. You'll see my oldest running through the yard just picking tomatoes, um, picking cherries off the cherry tree, all kinds of things like that. Um, we definitely have been trying to eat more of the ulu, which is the breadfruit. So we've been trying to steam it. I've made ulu au gratin. So it's really similar to like a potato. It's a starchy um, kind of, I guess it's a fruit, grows on a tree. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we definitely eat a lot of what we grow. Our kids like to help themselves to it. And then selling it and definitely kind of trying to replace my income with the, the money from that. Yeah, that's a really neat business model because then you you don't have that like bringing a whole bunch of stuff to a market and then hoping it sells. Right. Like you and then mm -hmm. you can you can pick based on on what your sales are, too. That's a really, a really interesting way of doing things. I know we uh, we have an Iowa food hub that we've participated in here, and it is a really nice model, especially for being able to sell direct to consumer and to restaurants and to, to wholesalers mm -hmm. like that because you're not driving from here to here to here and dealing with somebody who wants one pound and somebody who wants 20 pounds and you know it really mm -hmm. one drop off and one check does make it really nice um i know one of the things that first attracted us to you was how open you are on social media and i'm really <laughs> in <laughs> i say this as somebody who also is um how do you balance being exactly yourself with making direct market sales? Because there is always that kind of, um, at least a little bit taking into consideration what you say, uh, knowing that you depend on these people for your money. And even if you decide to say to hell with them and say what you were going to say anyway, you know. I think we generally think about it. Before. Sometimes, sometimes we think about it before we say it. Yeah, I mean, I, I even I do have a filter to an extent. Um, that's a good question. I really, I love like a ten percent out of a hundred percent filter. I guess I would say that's just how I am. I've always been that way. Um, I don't. I personally, it only one person had made a comment about oh I won't purchase from you they've never even bought from me before um when we're talking about kind of some of the stuff with the fire because Oprah a lot of people don't know but she owns a lot of land here in Maui she's not the most ethical person a lot of people don't like her a lot of people think it's a race thing here in Hawaii no one could care less the color of her skin um it's more that she owns so much land in the past when we've had fires she has a private road she doesn't like to open it up to the county to help people evacuate things like that so a lot of people have kind of like a bad taste in their mouth about her and so there was a post about her um she has helped out significantly now since the fire started but when it first started it was really just her like with a camera crew trying to go to one of the first um shelters and i kind of just didn't sit well with people so i kind of made a comment about it on one of the local um pages here in Hawaii on Instagram and someone commented back oh well I'll never be purchasing from you again and I said that's fine because I intend to donate most of everything I grow right now um to help feed everyone in the community and yeah that was really only the other only bad comment I've ever gotten 
Um, I mean, potentially, maybe there's people that have seen my content and been like, hmm, I don't want to buy produce from her. I don't think so, really. Um, a lot of the people that buy produce from Maui Hub, I don't think most of them are on social media because I didn't get like a lot of new followers or any messages or comments or anything like that when I started selling on Maui Hub. Um, and there's also like a lot of elderly people that buy produce on there that get like vouchers um, from different programs from like the county and state and things like that. Um, so I guess the short answer is I haven't really seen it affect anything. I mean, it could potentially and I'm just not aware of it. Um, but I'd rather be authentically myself than not be myself and, you know, make money from being fake. It just doesn't really sit right with me, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. It does. As someone who did farmer's market for years too it seems like the person complaining is always the one who like spent six dollars one time three years ago and was such a pain in the ass <laughs> with even that sale that you're like no it's fine it's totally fine if you don't come back that's okay like you know won't hurt my feelings too badly <laughs> yeah so you've talked you mentioned a couple of times already the the fires in maui and i know that being in a community where something is happening is completely different than what we see on the news. And, you know, we probably saw snippets, but really have no idea what it was like living there. So are you willing to talk a bit about what it was like living in the community that was affected by those fires and, and what happened in that that time? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that. I mean, I, of course, so the geography of Maui, I, where I live is like the back way to go out to Lahaina. Um, so Maui, I don't know if I can like draw a sheet for you, but basically it has like this curve um, at one end of it. So you go into Lahaina. Uh, people like to think the whole west side of Lahaina, but Lahaina is a town on the west side of Maui. Um, so you go in that way and you come back around the back way, which I don't recommend unless you've driven that road because it's really one lane. There's a lot of straightaways. There's no guardrails going off the cliff. People do go off sometimes. But if you went all the way back, back around the back way and came out through like central Maui, I live like closer to the back way, but not all the way in the back, if that makes sense. Um, so we weren't directly affected by the fires. Um, but we do know a lot of people that were affected. Um, I don't want to cry. But of course, as a mom, like when you see that there were like children that didn't make it, that didn't survive. Um, I've seen some videos. We have a friend who was working with his company they're out there Lahaina, so they took some video there's there were definitely um you know some charred bodies bodies in cars babies in car seats um that part is really really hard as a mom but um yeah also living in a small community it definitely just affects you i used to work in kaanapali so on the west side so a lot of people that i know there was a fire in 2018. It almost took out a, it took out a few houses. It almost took out a bunch of houses of people that I knew, but it didn't. That almost made it worse this time because they did lose their houses. Um, so they had that scare in 2018. They almost lost their houses. My coworker had told me, oh, I was in the yard with my water hose, watering everything. I didn't want to lose my house. I didn't want to lose my house. And I know this time that she did lose her house. So that's hard when you know everyone. Um and then also we have like extended family that live on that side, um, friends, friends, cousins, things like that, that lost their houses. You know, Maui's, Hawaii is a small place, but Maui's an even smaller place. Um, so it definitely affects you um, to see that happen. Um, I don't know if you have any like 
what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> like direct questions about different aspects of it. You can ask me. Um, I'll do my best not to cry, but it is very emotional. Um, because it's just like I don't know what you guys see on your social media, but here in Hawaii, like there's special different pages, you know, like news pages, um, that you can see, and there's a lot of content on there, um, that's coming directly from people here in Maui, and it it's really really hard to see, like. Even the aerial views, the drone views of how like a whole entire town burnt down. And I had family that lived in Paradise during the Paradise Fire and, you know, their whole town burnt down and they lost their house. It was just different because they had a little bit more notice. There were more evacuation routes. Um, Lahaina, there's really one lane in and one lane out. Um, and then there were some roadblocks because of down power lines. So that you know, added another complication to the whole aspect. So there's a lot of people um, that had to leave their cars and get out and go in the water. A lot of people that didn't get out, um, unfortunately. And then some people just ran to get away from it. Um, my old boss used to work for a restaurant um, that had a location in Kie, but they their location in Lahaina burnt down. I went to school with her children. One of her sons was stuck in the roadblock on Front Street with his family. So they just got out of their car and left it and ran down the street. And that's the only reason they're alive. Um, and we're hearing so many stories about things like that, about people that we know, too. So it just hits a little bit different. It's not just like, oh, this happened somewhere. That's so horrible. I can't imagine. Like, you can imagine when it happens in your community. And it's people that you know, and they're telling you these stories. It's just, it's unbelievable, even though it is believable at the same time. What are people saying when it comes to what went wrong and why there wasn't more warning and and more time for people to get out? What is kind of the, I mean, and sometimes there's a difference between the, the official story and what people actually think is true, but but what are some of the stories out there about about what, what went wrong? Yeah, so there's a lot of conspiracies going on. Some of them are true. Sure. Some of them aren't. Um, so my other half had just started working for the water department for the county that day they were out there and i remember he was texting me it's so windy that the shingles off of people's roofs are flying off like you know he's texting me all day long like the road's covered in like tar paper because the roofs are flying off so it was really 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 windy ultimately there was a power line that went down it's dry on that side all the water gets diverted for you know a few companies big interest companies um, because historically Lahaina is a wetland, excuse me, it hasn't been a wetland for quite some time since the plantations when they first started diverting the water, but now everything is dry. Um, so it just sparked a fire and then I think it was just poor management and not enough communication. Also, you know, we're on a small island, so the infrastructure just isn't set up for things like that. Things like that don't happen here. Um, so I think it was just no one was prepared. There wasn't good communication. And then it was just a cascade of effects after that. Um, and even after the initial fire happened, there still wasn't a lot of good communication because the power lines were down, the cell service was out, no one could communicate really well. Um, and then it just, you know, it was a snowball effect and just kind of evolved from there. I think, too, as someone from the Midwest, the the concept of not having anywhere to run from something like that. I mean, we have tornadoes. So you go in your basement or you mm -hmm. go out in your front yard and you watch it, you know, because that's who we are. But, <laughs> you know, occasionally people get killed, but it's one person or two people. And like, not that it's not still tragic for those people, 
but it's not a large-scale disaster. And maybe it flattens some houses, but it's like a mile long and 50 feet wide that the path of destruction is, you know. Or we have flooding, but it's not mm-hmm. that bad. It tends to be river bottoms. It's not. And I know for myself, and I feel like this might be a universal truth for parents, that once you have kids, all kids are your kids. And not that it's, I'm not going to say it's not still tragic and horrible and horrifying when adults die, but little ones, and especially little ones who are too small to have any chance, it is that much more heartbreaking. And so the idea of people in such a small town being trapped like that is terrifying. And I think, too, with things like tornadoes, I mean, they happen very quickly, but they're over very quickly. It is a couple minutes and it's Mm -hmm. done. And maybe things are flattened, but it's, there's not more coming. There's not ash. There's not hot spots. There's not, you know, it's, it's done. And then you can just clean up. And I think fire does just hits very differently at that point. And I was reading a really interesting article last night about how much very intentional misinformation is coming out of China into American social media, basically to use this tragedy to distract people from other things that are happening by just feeding this misinformation into social media and getting people worried about that the government did it on purpose as some, like, weather control plan. You know, and that they're intentionally feeding this out there. And the idea that they're intentionally using a tragedy like this to distract us from whatever they're distracting us from is just mind-blowing. And it's, I think it's, it's really interesting to me to see how, what sorts of natural disasters each area has shapes how that area relates to things, I guess, because, I mean, we have tornadoes, blizzards, and floods, and that's really it. And it's a very different response to these things that fires and earthquakes and whatever they have in Canada. Uh, lack of poutine, curling, <laughs> horrible curling accidents. Yeah, I don't yeah, know what yeah. they have in Canada. Curling, curling accidents, accidents, yeah. Probably. But I guess... Probably pretty similar to the Midwest in terms of yeah. natural disasters. Add in some forest fires, depending where you live. Not not specifically where I am, yeah. Yeah, I've seen the fires you folks yeah. have had recently look really, really scary mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it's not not so much in the communities that I, I live in, but yeah, especially in mountain mountain areas. But it sounds similar, right, where you've got limited transportation routes and communication networks are already fragile because of because of isolation and and those types of things it does make it really hard except at least being land-based if you can get people out fast enough there's there's not a barrier there Mm -hmm. right like i mean the the footage of people going into the ocean to to avoid the the smoke and the flames is is pretty terrible raven i imagine as well that being a small town is most of your emergency response also volunteer I mean, not necessarily. There is a good amount of volunteer um, firefighters and things like that. That We definitely have a fire department. Um, every city has their own station, I want to say. Um, 
So like Maui, the county of Maui is the island of Maui, the island of Lanai and Molokai. Um, but we're three separate islands. Um, so I know that they had people that they, uh, I think, you know, after everything kind of happened, shipped in from some of the outer islands. I think they even had some people coming in from the mainland to help out. Um, but there, you know, there is a fire department that is like designated for each section of Maui, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I just think about, you know, in our area, like our closest town of like 10,000 people has one full-time firefighter and like they have a station they are fully staffed but it's all volunteer and you know comparing that level of preparation and readiness to someplace like New York City where there's people whose entire career and there's multiple big fire stations like that and just what the response must be like and especially when their families are being threatened you know they're not coming in from somewhere else it's it's their homes and their families and that it's just that much scarier to think about yeah and unfortunately a lot of our firemen did lose their homes as well um one of my friends her other half the fireman his house burnt down and a, a, a lot of other firemen lost their own homes so their houses were burning down while they were fighting the fire to try to protect other people's houses so another aspect where it just hits a lot closer to home um so looping back to the like the agriculture aspect of i mean that's kind of where we you know one of the ways that we look at things so how has that affected the farming community where we're in on maui and food distribution and those types of things and the the infrastructure that people need to to get the food that they need to eat because i'm assuming that you know as much as possible, people are eating things from the islands rather than importing food from other places because it would be a lot more expensive. Yeah, I mean, a good portion of food is still imported, unfortunately. Um, I say unfortunately because we have the land to grow it. We have the amazing climate, amazing soil that's super fertile from the volcano, everything like that. Um, but a lot of food is still imported. Um, but it's definitely affected agriculture. So there wasn't just the Lahaina fire. At the same time, there was a fire going on up country, which, like I had previously mentioned, is where a lot of stuff is grown as well because it's a colder climate, higher elevation. So up in Olinda, which is kind of like up above Makawao, where I had lived for quite a while. So that hit home for me was on fire. They have a lot of eucalyptus trees up there. And so the roots also have oil. So they kept having flare-ups. Um, and with all the focus on Lahaina, it was really the residents that were out there um, kind of protecting their own land and firefighting themselves, which was really crazy. Um, but Kula also had a fire as well. They, that's where they grow a lot of stuff. So it's definitely affected the whole island, I would say. Um, the farmers that... There were farms that were affected in West Maui, but also the farms that had accounts in West Maui have been affected um, because restaurants aren't open. Hotels are open, but they're housing residents right now. They're not open for business. So those restaurants aren't open at the hotels. So that was a big hit. Um, Maui Hub is just so awesome and so community based that they took on a bunch of new just, um, you know, farms. And last week, it hit like a record high for how much orders they had. So that's good. So there's still a loss in income. Um, there's different funds set up where farmers can apply to get some assistance. But um, it's nice to see that a lot of those farmers were able to be added on to Maui Hub. The community was still able to purchase food from them. And at the same time, Maui Hub gave out vouchers as well for anyone affected by the fire. So a lot of 
people are still able to get local produce. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of wind destruction, especially up in Kula where it affected crops. You know, and the wind is like going 70 miles an hour. It's ripping small, you know, plants out of the ground. Um, and then also the fire damage. A lot of people lost like greenhouses and things like that. Um, and then also up in Olinda, some people lost, you know, like half their pasture. Um, I know one farm family that lost their bees, unfortunately, they just couldn't get out there because there's also the water issue. Um, the water tanks weren't full. This family, the only reason um, she was telling me that they were able to um, really kind of protect their land is because they had their own water tank. Um, and that's what they're out there using to kind of fight the fire. So, yeah, it's definitely affected agriculture in that way, in the way, in the sense that people have lost a lot of accounts. Um, so that's lost income and also just the actual visible damage to their farms has um, created a loss in income as well. Yeah, there's just so many different ways it affects people in, in the, the days after. But then it's that long last, those long lasting effects, too, right? So are there things that we can be doing to support the people of Maui and what kinds of rebuilding or, and healing projects are happening that maybe listeners could support or that we should know about or even follow on social media and give more more voice to? Um, yeah, I mean, I know that something that has been proposed is to shop local for Christmas and holidays. Um I can kind of share some pages with you folks afterwards. Um, but there's definitely a lot of small shops here on Maui that are small businesses that are locally owned, especially the ones that are Kanaka owned, so owned by Native Hawaiians, um, need a lot of support as well. Um, so that's one way if you are like, hmm, what can I order someone for Christmas? Oh, well, they would love something handmade in Maui because who wouldn't? That's a huge selling point. That's one way um, you can assist. There's also... Um, on Instagram, there's the Lahaina family Venmo page. And so all these people have been vetted and their Venmos are up on this page. They post new families every day and you can just scan it and pick a family to donate to. Um, because it's going to take quite a few years to get everything cleaned up before they can even rebuild. Because the way everything burnt, the soil and everything is so toxic. They're still looking, unfortunately, for people that are just kind of ash right now because how hot the fire was a lot of people are just their bodies won't be recovered so that missing person list I think a lot of us have come to terms with the fact that you know after a month that missing person list they're not missing unfortunately they're no longer with us um so yeah it's gonna take a few years to get the land cleaned before they can even start to rebuild um so a lot of families are gonna need assistance you know for quite some time it's you know, they keep saying it's going to be a marathon, um, not a sprint. So, yeah, if you wanted to donate to families, their Venmo pages are up. I can share those pages with you folks. Um, there's, you know, the big verified foundations, but that money doesn't get out right away to people. People are in desperate need of money right now for different things. Um, like there's a huge backlog with like the food stamps department right now. It's already such a small department. It's already always backlogged but now to have all these families that have no income um there is unemployment but that's a whole another thing that's backlogged as well for these families um so needing assistance right now um i know that you can always order off of the amazon there's some i'll send you guys all the links for everything but there's a few different 
pages where you can just order on Amazon and have it sent there and they'll distribute it out. Um, there's a few different foundations that do that, nonprofits, because um, there is a lot of children affected. So a lot of the big things that are needed are like diapers, wipes, formula, baby food, things like that is a big thing. Also being a mom, you know, that hits closer to home when there's so many children affected. Um, but yeah, and also I would say another way that you can support Maui is doing some research um, on the history of Hawaii. A lot of people don't know the history um, or unfortunately a lot of people kind of fantasize about Hawaii. Like, oh, I watched the Brady Bunch growing up. This is what I think Hawaii is. And it's not not really accurately portrayed, I would say, um, in movies and film and things like that. So I feel like doing some research on, um, on the history of Hawaii really helps out a lot as well to get a full picture of everything because I don't think everyone really understands how everything kind of plays in um, if you don't have all the information available to you. Arlene, I see here, I pulled up the MauiHub.org page as well, and they have a option to donate mm-hmm. directly to families to purchase food from the hub, mm-hmm. which seems like a great way to support farmers and families. So we'll link that as well. Um, because, yeah, another thought on an island is that, you know, here, I mean, if our hay fields burn up, we can bring hay from another place or we can bring lumber from another place easily. You know, I mean, it might be hard to get, but the the transporting it to an island in the middle of an ocean is a very different um, demand than Iowa or Ontario. You know, I mean, we're kind of out in the sticks, but we're not we're not remote in the same way that an island in the middle of an ocean is. We've, yeah, we we've, have an interstate highways that goes, yes. you know, <laughs> cross country pretty yeah. easily. Uh, where you guys are definitely in a whole different situation. Um, as far as, am I correct in thinking that your area is pretty dependent on tourism as well? It is. I, I say unfortunately because obviously when something like this happens and there is, you know, just an automatic halt in tourism, it severely affects people. Um, yeah, it, it's hard. It's kind of like a catch-50. Unfortunately, the way our infrastructure is set up um, and the way that, you know, some of the big plantation owner families that helped with the facilitation of the illegal occupation of Hawaii kind of set it up where we're dependent on tourism like um you know they set it up where we need tourism which i feel certain ways about uh working in tourism because i've seen it firsthand um i'm not opposed to tourism but it could be set up better where we're not in such a uh like a need for it where we have to rely on it um because there are not some natural resources here in hawaii and the fact that we could be exporting way more than we import um because we have the wonderful climate where we can grow almost anything year round the really fertile soil the land mass to be growing stuff it's just not something that's on everybody's mind um unfortunately but yeah we definitely rely on tourism a lot more than maybe we should we should diversify a little bit i personally think but i don't know if we will even after this i don't know if that's on people's minds yet it's it's interesting because especially right now, I mean, it seems like when such a large part of your money comes from something where 
very specifically, I'm guessing that having lots more people show up is going to be about the least helpful possible thing at this point. You know, to be like, hey, you know, it'd be great is if a whole bunch of randos showed up, you know, I mean, we're having a hard time supporting the people who live here, but why don't the rest of you come too? That'll be great. Yeah. yeah. So Arlene, what I'm hearing is that we need to plan for like two years down the road and prepay now, but we're just going to go to Raven's house. I hope that's, I hope that's cool, Raven. We'll send you some money now so that we can come in two years and stay in your yard. That sounds fun. Let's <laughs> stay in my yard. Um, that sounds more fun than staying in a hotel. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned about people learning more about Hawaiian culture and history. And if someone is traveling to Hawaii, not right now, but are there ways that you think that we can become, that we can be more ethical tourists and actually um, find ways if you, you know, if, if Hawaii back rather than just taking more yeah is on your bucket list and somewhere you've always wanted to go are there ways to do that 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 you feel are good for the community and and give yeah i think being from hawaii i'm not native hawaiian um my other half is but i was born in hawaii i think um just being born in hawaii we have such a pride for our home it's such a unique place that i think the rest of the world have such a hard time really wrapping their head around um because we're so culturally diverse you know we we refer to Hawaii as the melting pot of the Pacific because it truly is especially from having the plantations there are just so many different cultures um and we have our own way of doing things um you know technically we're a nation within a nation which people don't like to acknowledge um so it's different here it really really is it's a culture shock when you're coming from other places um you know, there's just a lot of different influences going on here. A lot of people, like I said, they they fantasize Hawaii and what they want Hawaii to be or what they think Hawaii should be. And it's most of the time not accurate. Um, people come with a lot of entitlement. You know, some of the comments that we hear, especially that I've heard working in tourism, are just, you can't even believe it. It's so outrageous. You're like, what? Who raised these people? Um, there's definitely a lot of tourists, though, that come that are amazing. Um, that's one of the awesome things about living in Hawaii is you meet all kinds of people. You can make really awesome connections. It's such a small place. Like, you'll be so surprised that connections that you can make here that you know from this person that knows that person. Like, because it's such a small, special place. Um, but, yeah, definitely coming without that sense of entitlement. Um, I think you should come with an open heart and have respect. But also doing the research to understand the bigger picture about Hawaii. Because um, there's so much different things going on. There's a lot of injustices, unfortunately, that go along here. Um, the stem back to the plantations, stems back to the overthrow of Hawaii. Um, we didn't just happily become a state. <laughs> That's not how it works. Um, so I think kind of understanding that, understanding that, um, yeah, people work in tourism, they might make a lot of money working in tourism, but the cost of living is also super high, that it kind of just flattens out. Um a lot of people have multiple, and this was something that you saw in the line of fires too. A lot of people had multiple um, generations living in one home. So that was another reason, like, you're like, oh, you lost your house. You probably have a family member's house to go to. Well, some people had four different generations living in one home and they lost everything. Um, so that's something to think about that um, that's also still very normal here. Like where we live on family land, you know, I have um me and my other half our children a sibling in-laws um 
all kinds of people like live together. That's very, very normal and culturally normal for us. Um, lost my train of thought. But um, yeah, also, I think that if you're trying to be ethical, a lot of people come to Hawaii with how can I save as much money as possible? I think people need to understand it's expensive here. That's not possible. Maui in particular is the most expensive island, um, they say, in the world. So it's a very, very expensive. Um, you know, if you can't afford to come, I don't think you should just come anyways. I think you should really plan it out and be strategic about it and intend to buy local. Most of the time when you're buying local produce, we actually save money. It's a crazy concept, but you save money um, and that money stays here in our local economy. Like I know, for example, like when someone buys my produce, like that might buy diapers, that might buy milk for the week. We don't have dairy cows. Um, that might, you know, buy my children's haircuts or a pair of clothes or a pair of shoes, something like that. It really stays here in the economy um, and it really benefits everybody. Um, but yeah, coming with that sense of respect and an open heart and not thinking that we owe you aloha. <laughs> I know a lot of people think that it's definitely given freely. Um, but I've, I've definitely, I don't know, maybe I'm just jaded from my time working in tourism. I've worked from rental cars, the hotel. So recently I worked in property management. That was really the worst though, when I was talking to people over the phone and reservations. And I don't know if COVID, obviously I feel like it has played a role in people just acting crazy. Um, but I've been told some really crazy things over the phone that you just wouldn't believe. And it, I don't know where it comes from. I think it's a you know combination of everything, to be honest. Um, but yeah, just coming with an open heart, being respectful. And then, yeah, doing the thorough research of where you're staying. You know, like, it's hard to pronounce some of the words. But once you get the vowels out, it's actually really easy. And like wanting to pronounce them properly. Like, there's some people that don't even try or... It feels like they purposely mispronounce things. We're very, very prideful here in Hawaii. So it definitely hurts feelings sometimes. Um, but yeah, if you have any more specific questions, because now I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, those are some really good points. Yeah, I mean, even just, yeah, respecting the place where you're going is a huge step, right? And not making fun of something because you can't pronounce it. But but asking for clarification or saying, you know, like, I don't know how to say this, but can you teach me? You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Letting letting the people who you're meeting actually teach you something rather than just assuming that they're there to provide you with the ultimate vacation and then you can go back home again. I know Arlene, obviously, I don't know what the Canadian feelings towards Hawaii might be, if you have opinions about Hawaii, but it feels like in the U.S. we take a pretty if we were able to conquer you, you belong to us now and you have to be nice to us. And that mm -hmm. we generally treat Hawaii as a big version of Disneyland anyway. That nobody really lives there and nobody like... Anybody who lives there basically is like Mickey Mouse. That they live there so that we can visit and like go to luau's and go surfing. And that they don't have their own lives and their own families and their own concerns and that they're super stoked for all of us pasty white people who can't pronounce anything to come and run around in ill-fitting bikinis and be rude and <laughs> i have the feeling that that is not true um you know and yeah it's um 
it can be hard to remember that it is somebody's home. And that you can make fun of yourself for being unable to pronounce it, but you should not be making fun of it being hard to pronounce because that's on you for not being able to pronounce it. So let's talk about our children, something that has never caused us any stress. <laughs> yeah, let's go into kid talk. Or cost us any money or... um. I don't think my kids have ever set on any anything on fire, so that's good. They do mispronounce a lot of things, so there's that. Um, one of the reasons we started the podcast was because of the isolation uh, when we first became parents and still do as farm parents. What was your parenting experience like in early days, and especially, I know you said that you do have a more multi-generational uh, I don't know if it's your direct household or your, if you have a bit of a family compound, like our family does, uh, how that was, because I know it can be very strange to be isolated and surrounded by people who would love to tell you how to do stuff at the same time. Yeah. Um, hmm. So it is more like a compound. It's just me and my children, my other half in our home. Um, it was definitely still very isolating for me um my mom lives on island but she's too busy running her cult um to be a mom these days i wish i was joking i'm sorry my whole family was just here for the whole weekend so i <laughs> so yeah my mom is busy with other things with her following that she has i guess you could say um so yeah i mean i wasn't a terribly young mom i was 25 I think when I had my first child that's still young I mean people are having kids at like 14 these days but so I felt old at the same time I didn't because it's not old um but yeah I really didn't have a lot of support so that was pretty hard um at first you know I had my first child in December of 2019 I was off for three months for maternity leave because that's unfortunately what we get I know in Canada you get a lot longer um and then I went back for about a month and then COVID happened. So I was off the whole first year with my oldest, which was really, really nice. And I got paid from unemployment to be off. Um, so that was really nice to be able to be paid and stay home with my oldest the whole first year. Um, but it was still, yeah, very isolating. Um, my mother-in-law and I don't see eye to eye on anything. So that was harder because I wanted to cloth a diaper or she took it very personal I don't know why uh, we just have very different ways of doing things um and I like to do things a little, a little bit more on the natural side which was a huge weird thing I don't know why it is for the older generation but it is um I wanted to do a home birth I didn't get to do a home birth I still did a very my natural way of doing things I still had my midwives went with me to the hospital we just did everything differently and then yeah I cloth diapered um made my own baby food and things like that um with my youngest I've definitely really stopped being so crazy about stuff I still try to do more on the natural side of everything if I can I cloth diapered him like the first month or so and then I stopped because I had to go back to work um so I didn't continue that with him but I definitely am like, no coloring, so food dyes, no junk food, natural things. My kids are really fortunate. They can go outside and eat a mango off the tree. So that's really nice. Um, they are definitely 
boys, though, um, and because we live out in a rural area, they're crazy. Um, they're always climbing the trees. Yeah. Have they have they ever used the toilet for peeing or do they just pee outside all the time? My oldest, my youngest hasn't really mastered that yet. My oldest loves to pee outside. He will pee inside, but always has to go outside, um, pee off the porch, pee on trees, the grass, wherever. My youngest is naked a lot, so um, he'll just, like, stop in the middle of the grass and you know he's going to pee. <laughs> he hasn't really mastered that yet. My mother-in-law asked yesterday why the apple trees look so good since we've been in a drought and we haven't been watering them. And I was kind of joking when I told her that it was because our little boy pees on them. But I wasn't totally joking. I'm pretty sure that's part of why they look good. But How yeah. old is your son? Five. Old enough to pee on stuff. Funny, before everything happened and I stopped working in tourism, there's this family staying one of the properties and their kids i guess were peeing outside which to me felt so normal but the you know resident manager called us to complain about it at the company and then um i was reading the notes in the reservation and they're like oh we're so sorry we live out in the country our kids are just used to that and everyone in the office is like i'm sure you can relate to this i'm like yes i can it's very normal i i still don't think it was weird that they were peeing in the grass but apparently others were upset by it so I feel like this kind of has already been answered, but what are some of the other things that you love about raising your kids on the land and being able to to farm with them and raise food with them? Yeah, I mean, I love that they can be connected to their culture. My, my three-year-old is so intelligent. He's also very naughty. One of those kids that, you know, have to be very stimulated or, I don't know, they may end up in prison one day. Um, so he has a lot of questions. I think we're raising very similar children here, Raven. Yeah. It's just smart for his own good, but he's very interested in how everything works. So I think that's cool. And I think that it's awesome that he can be raised so deeply in his culture. Unfortunately, a lot of people here in Hawaii have kind of disconnected from that. Um, so my children, like they have Hawaiian first names, an English middle name, and then another Hawaiian middle name, and then their father's two last names because we both have hyphenated last names. Um, something that you see a lot here in Hawaii is that people will have an English first name and a Hawaiian middle name and go by the Hawaiian middle name, which is because it wasn't fashionable to be Hawaiian. So with that and everything that happened, it, a lot of people are disconnected from their roots, unfortunately. Um, and it really doesn't have anything to do with how Hawaiian they are, how dark their skin is, things like that. You could see the most Hawaiian-looking person with the most Hawaiian name, and they have just completely disconnected from their culture and their identity because they, you know, it's kind of what had to happen to survive here. Um, so I think it's really awesome that my kids can be so knowledgeable, especially my three-year-old, on the Hawaiian names for things, um, how you eat things, what they are, how you grow them, because he's very hands-on in the garden. Like, he wants to help plant everything. Like, you can ask him to go grab pick and he'll go pick the cane grass and he knows how and at first it was scary because he's so small but you know he's really very helpful he knows how to use all the tools um and I love that I mean he still watches his iPad we don't own a TV but we have an iPad and everyone has cell phones well not him but you know the adults um but I think it's awesome that like my kids want to go outside like I have to lock them in the house because they want to be outside. Like, that's where they want to be. They want to be climbing trees. They want to be chasing the chickens and the cats and 
playing in the mud and playing in the dirt. I don't know why they love to rub dirt on each other, but they do. Um, so I think being <laughs> outside that they get to experience that different side of the world and build their immunity because they eat the dirt as well, among other things that they find out. <laughs> but when it comes to the school system and education, what is it like in terms of incorporating Hawaiian culture into the education system? Or is that something that still yeah, needs? I've considered homeschooling. Their father did graduate from Kamehameha. Um, so that is a school that was set up by the queen for Hawaiian children. Um, you can get scholarships. It is a private school on the pricier side. They do get a really good education going there. That's something that we've considered. Um, there's also some other Hawaiian immersion schools where they only speak um, Olelo Hawaii. So that's something that we also considered. Um, with that, it is a bigger commitment because the parents do have to take Hawaiian language classes because that you need to be able to speak Hawaiian at home as well as in school. They only speak Hawaiian to them. So that's another thing that we've really thought about. Um, I mean, not to say public school is kind of just bleh everywhere. I feel like these days, in my personal opinion, um, I've considered homeschooling just because, yeah, my son definitely needs to be stimulated or he is just like insane. Um, but there is a school in Eau Valley, which is somewhere we like to go by the river and go swimming a lot that I think he would do well in um, because it is Hawaiian immersion, because it is right by the water and some of the activities that they do, we've looked into it. It looks really good. So I think we're either going to stick him there or I may homeschool, but we want to stick him in school opposed to me homeschooling, I think. Um, it may be a little bit hard with my children being so small and so close together. Like they just, I feel like would not school with me at home, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, for sure. I am not a homeschooler, so I'm not saying that I could do it. I was just curious about how yeah, how Hawaiian culture gets incorporated into education. But yeah, the immersion programs sound, sound amazing. I know around here there are French language schools where the parents definitely have to be, be French if you want to enroll your child because everything is in, in, in the parent-teacher parent -teacher night, every all the communication, everything. So you have to be, it would be their first language, right? Like parent to, to speak in the, the language of the school and not, not the other way around. Plus, it, it seems extra harsh to, to wedge your kids into a, a cinder block public school if they're used to being able to see the ocean from the front porch and run around and pick mangoes off the trees or whatever other tropical paradise Brady Bunch situation you have going on over there, that then you'd be like, go sit in a desk. I don't care that you're five. Go inside. Like, that sounds horrible. Um... Yeah, that sounds mean. I don't, I had something else. I don't remember what it was. Gone now. Um, so what are some of your biggest parenting struggles, whether it's farm related or general? Am I right in thinking that there are not venomous snakes in Hawaii? Yeah. So, gosh, I could. So that feels like that takes the first level off that right yes, there. Like... I couldn't live where you ladies are. I'm sorry. I couldn't do it. Um. I don't like reptiles. We really just have like geckos and that's it. And they're good because they eat the termites and the cockroaches that we have here in Hawaii. Um, yes, we do not have snakes, which I love because like I said, I just thinking about snakes gives me chicken skin. Yeah, I'm not a fan of those. We do not have snakes. We don't really have natural predators. The most scariest thing that you need to think about is wild pigs. We have had some in the yard recently um but that's really it or where we are out here 
Um, there is, I've heard them before too. So it, it, I don't, I believe that it's true, but there's supposedly a pack of wild dogs, um, out here. I've heard them at night, haven't seen them, but that just happens from like hunting dogs that get left behind in the mountain. And then they kind of just like become feral. Um, cause where we are is, you know, we're 12 minutes from town, but it's very, uh, rural where we are. Um, there's feral cats, but that's really it. There's mongooses. They really don't come towards you. They're not like if you were to like if one was sleeping and my kid grabbed it, probably would attack my child. But they're very not friendly. Like they they won't come to you kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's not really any natural predators. We don't have like predatory birds or anything like that. You know, I've heard stories of like, oh, a hawk snatched up a small child. No. We don't have hawks, eagles, um, things like that. All the native wildlife here is very not scary or dangerous or anything like that. We don't have bears, anything like that. Um, Yeah, no mountain lions. See, now, Raven, I'm going to stop you right there because same as the natural disasters, like we have snakes, we have a few venomous snakes. We do have uh, timber rattlers up here. Not many. I've never seen one. Wild hogs, like, I would lose my shit if wild pigs showed up in my yard. Pigs are fucking nasty. They're horrible. I have been around black bears before that I have surprised that I would be less worried about than wild hogs. So when you're all like, oh, we don't have any snakes. Snakes are scary. But wild hogs, like, I don't know. Hawaii is off my list now. To hell with wild hogs. No way, dude. Pigs will eat you. Pigs will eat all of you. They will, but they'll let you sit dead for a while first. <laughs> they like the dead meat. Oh, gross. Okay, we're gross. going like true crime yeah, <laughs> into an infamous podcast. <laughs> now, I, every, I mean, I'm sure that only a few of these stories are true, but every community around here has a story about somebody who murdered someone and fed them to the hogs. And, you know, the, the one around here, I do believe, uh, they found the dentures and, like, part of a hip implant. And that's all they ever found. So. Do you want to loop back to the original question? <laughs> I believe it. I love true crime, but also I know someone that has a pig farm. And, you know, I went to school with their children. And that was something that one of the boys told people, oh, you better watch out because we have a pig farm. You know, if you go missing. So I believe it. I believe it. Okay, sorry, Arlene. Our little true crime crossover. Wild pigs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. So what the parenting struggles outside of getting your kids not to pee on stuff and not letting them be eaten by wild hogs or mongoose. Is mongoose even the correct plural of mongoose? <laughs> Is it mongoose? I don't know. We'll find out later. Aren't you glad, Arlene, that we took a whole month off so that I can derail things this quickly when we come back? Okay, but Raven, seriously, parenting struggles, go for it. I guess parenting struggles is just parenting different um, than our parents parented. I feel like my other half struggles with that a little bit more. Um, neither one of us really come from the greatest background. Unfortunately, I feel like that's a huge theme with Indigenous people. Um we both, you know, we're different cultures. We're both still indigenous. Um, 
but there's just a really heavy undertone of addiction and some abuse and things like that um unfortunately i mean i think you go far enough back in any person's culture that's there i feel like it's just a little bit more highlighted in indigenous cultures um so that's a struggle trying to not let childhood things affect our parenting now and also trying to parent different than the way we were parented um that's a big struggle like my children drive me crazy oh my gosh and my my oldest says all the most inappropriate things at all the most inappropriate times and you know like uh, but I know it's he's heard it come out of someone's mouth was it my mouth? Was it the father's? Was it the grandpa's? Probably was the grandpa's. But, you know, um, that's something that's really, really hard, I feel like. Um, and just feeling like because I don't have, like, a lot of guidance and support, like, am I doing it right? Am I doing this the right way? Am I ruining my child? I don't know if everyone feels that way. Um, but that seems to be a big struggle, like, trying to do, yes, trying to do, like, the whole gentle parenting thing is really hard when you don't have gentle children um so that's a huge struggle um also like having boys I feel like is hard because yeah they're boys and I'm not a boy and my son asks me why I'm not a boy all the time and having space space that's it um and then yeah trying to like juggle it to different culture cultural aspects to it um my other half is Native Hawaiian. So here in Hawaii, everyone's mixed. You know, the melting called the melting pot of the Pacific. Everyone's mixed. Um, but you know, my other half is Hawaiian, Portuguese, Japanese. So, and I'm Spanish, Native American, Siberian, English mixed. So I'm very mixed as well. Um, we just have different ways of doing things, and sometimes it clashes. Also, have different tastes. Well, we like some of the same foods, but also our like indigenous foods to each other are different. So trying to kind of blend that all out and then of course my children one is very white looking and one is very brown and you know like trying to answer that my oldest will ask like why do I have different color skin why do I have different color hair like trying to like you know explain these things to him in a way that makes sense and also it makes me feel bad because I don't want to hurt his feelings and be like yeah you know mommy has darker hair than you but mommy has lighter skin like you but why did daddy and brother have darker hair and darker skin you know things like that I feel like are a challenge um with my children um do you struggle as well with generational preferences about what it is more ideal for your children to look like yeah I would say um about talking too badly about anyone yet that it's definitely a generational preference but even with like my grandma has a certain way of doing things and I'm just like oh that's so weird why no being a millennial you know I'm like no that's not how we're doing stuff around here um she's pretty good though but yeah there's definitely a generational preference on certain things like why would you buy everything organic well I don't want to feed my children extra chemicals when they're you know there's chemicals everywhere or why you know you know with my youngest and even with my oldest when he was younger like I'm a beige mom I guess you could say like wanting to do more earth tone had to like come out of my shell because my children love spider-man blue and red everywhere as you can see the wall back here you know it's like very boho or whole house is like terracotta colored um a lot of stuff in their room is but yeah they love spider-man there's spider-man 
everywhere. Spider-Man underwear, pajamas, hat. there's a Spider-Man hat there, figurines, everything, blankets, pillows. They love them to Spider-Man. So um, I don't want to be as controlling as my mother was about stuff. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, hey, well, doesn't this color look better? Nope. I want to wear orange and purple today. I'm like, okay, cool. You You put that on. So, you know, it's hard when you have such a strong sense of how you think things should be and children don't they have their own plans going on how they don't care like the other day i'm like oh you're gonna wear a long sleeve shirt it's gonna be hot and my son's like so i want to wear this shirt and i'm like are you sure you want to i mean we are going to costco it'll be cold in costco but it's gonna be hot before we get to costco so are you sure you want to wear long sleeves and then my son, you know, finally talked him out of it. I'm like, we can bring a jacket, but I don't think that you want to wear long sleeves and long pants. I don't think it's going to feel good. Not in the middle of the afternoon at 3 p.m. I think I, I liked what you said about being a gentle parent because we can, even when we're in our best moments and are channeling that gentle parent mentality, you're right. The response that we get is not gentle. Like they're not gentle back to us because we are being a gentle parent. So that just triggers all of those things, right, where you're. Like, but I'm doing the work here <laughs> to be loving and compassionate. And I literally just wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. There. Yeah. See, because yes, yes, Raven. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. Because the, the response, the response we get to gentle parenting is not gentleness in return. And, and that is, that is, can be really triggering for sure. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to feel good about. I know for myself, at least, it can be so tempting to slide back into generational patterns of, I will scare you slash force you into behaving because how dare you fucking throw something at my head when I'm being all, let's talk about our feelings. And then my kid just wings a rock at me. And I'm like, well, you little shit. Like, when I said express your feelings, I didn't mean like that. Yeah, I didn't like, mean these ones. Yeah, yeah not not those feelings, not this much. Like, how about if we limit some of the feelings, which is, of course, entirely <laughs> the yeah. point. You know what I keep reminding myself? Because both of my children have very strong personalities. I keep reminding myself, these are such good qualities for adults, not for toddlers, not when you're parenting toddlers. But they're both very strong-willed, both very independent go-getters like my my children can't reach something even my one-year-old will move furniture to reach it like they're very very intelligent oh they're just so hard to parent sometimes you know i will say i do have the benefit of a. have got a big stretch in my family my oldest is 17 and my youngest is eight so we've got i've got the benefit of like a bit of hindsight at this point because my 17 year old just went off to school and knowing how challenging she was as a toddler, I can say that it does, in her case, I mean, obviously not in every case, I mean, the, the others could still end up in prison, who knows, but in her case, it's, it's, coming, it's coming true. You know, like, I see the qualities that were so hard to manage when she was little, and I can see her managing her own life now in, in ways that, like, well, as a 17-year-old, I couldn't do. You know, like, she, yeah, the, the independence and the fierceness and the knowing who she is like that those are qualities that are that probably we and maybe it was partly that we were raised and maybe just the way you know things were at the time that we buried some of those things but but our kids are going to do amazing things so yeah as hard as it is now i think we just have to power through and then let them run the yeah. world 
And I don't want to like diminish that light within my children. I feel like uh, it's so easy to do that. But yeah, my oldest is not the type of child that if you yell at him or spank him, um, he's going to listen. Like he's not going to comply. Like he'll do the complete opposite. Like he's not. And he's always been that way. Like you can't scare him into doing something like he will literally do the complete opposite of what you want him to do. So he, yeah, makes it even harder. I can say Raven even is my first one is approaching seven um, and both of my kids have big personalities like that too. We're already starting to see the benefit of really encouraging that strength of character in our kids and trying to force myself to reframe it as things like strength of character and good leadership skills instead of strong-willed bossy pain in the ass. Because she is very compassionate, and she is a very good friend, and she is very helpful, and she's very tenacious. And all of those things can be really, really hard as the parent, but they're making them better people. Oh, yeah. If my son were to, like, accidentally do something, he'll apologize. If he did it on purpose and you ask him to apologize, he won't apologize. He's not sorry. He did it on purpose. Yeah, I did that for a reason. I've learned to have to respect that. Like, okay, yeah, he's not sorry. He's right. You shouldn't say sorry if you're not sorry. You shouldn't lie about it and fake it. Um, but it is frustrating coming from a parent's point of view. Like, just apologize. No, I'm not sorry. I did it on purpose. Well, I I assume it's not me, and it sounds like maybe your family background is similar to mine in a lot of ways. That it's so hard not to say. Do you know what would have happened to me if I had done that at your age? You know. Aren't you grateful that I didn't just smack you one for whatever you did? Because they're not, and they shouldn't be, and it is right and proper that they should have no idea about how much of a pain in the ass they're being, because that's why we're adults. And, you know, we chose to make these people, so we chose to deal with them being pains in the ass. And with mothers like us, we should have expected them to be like this. So... I was like, so I would have a daughter like me, but I have a son. All right. So we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure that you win. That's a good question. I mean, I want to say agriculture. I don't know that I would dominate that, though. Um, Probably if there was like a culinary aspect to it, I feel like I would dominate that, actually. Went to culinary school, um, and cooking is really my actual passion. I started cooking when I was four because, like my son, I was very strong-willed and I really wanted to cook. Um, so I'd have to see if there was like a culinary aspect to it. That's probably what I would dominate um, because I love cooking. It's always just come very, very natural, and it's something that um, just almost is therapeutic for me when I'm cooking, especially if I'm cooking for someone that I love. And I'm cooking something that I love. Um, then, yeah, it's very therapeutic. Um, it feels very healing for me to do that. That's perfect. We'll be your judges just so we get to taste it. <laughs> so we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe where listeners can leave their cussing and discussing. And we'll play them on the show. So go to the, the show notes and there's a link there. Or you can send us an email and we'll read it out. If you send one in to us. So, Katie, what are you cussing and discussing? Cussing or discussing this week? Well, Arlene, um, none of our listeners obviously can see this, but I am holding up yet another 
not quite completed crochet project. And I have fallen real hard into buying yarn because I like to buy yarn because it's fun and it's pretty. And I like to think of all the things I can make out of it. And I like to plan projects and I like to start projects. <laughs> I have a feeling I know where this is going. <laughs> the problem is that I have a lot of 70% finished projects. I think Arlene is one of the probably the only non-family recipient of an actual finished project at this point. Yeah, Arlene, you should feel wow. special. I, well, I thought I've, when I received my project, I should take a picture of it and post it on social media someday. When I received it, I thought, well, I know Katie is always crocheting when we're online. So she must give these out to everybody. No. I did not know I was so special. No. I think my in-laws were a little... But there's some 70% lying around the house. <laughs> a few. Yes, a few. I asked in a crochet group the other day how many <laughs> projects one could have on the hook before it got weird. And I was assured that anything less than 20 was still acceptable. And I think I'm, I think I'm down oh, to like... Okay. So you have to buy yarn and more crochet yeah. hooks so that you have enough. Yeah. Well, you just have to start things at different scales so that you can use different crochet hooks. Um, I think I'm down to like four things on the hook currently. But that's pretty good. If anyone needs me, I'll be finishing this stupid afghan. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be beautiful someday. Yeah. When yeah. stuff. Raven, what do you have to cuss and discuss? Oh gosh my closet it's an ongoing battle i'm one of those people that may or may not have about three laundry hampers full of clean clothes but nowhere to put them um and a desire to buy more clothing every time i see it yes i have that desire all the time but do you ever actually leave the farm to wear any of it i mean or are you so like so many of us now that you have all this nice clothing that you never wear because you don't go anywhere. Yes and no. I feel like for me, I'm like, what if an occasion comes up where I need the satin dress? Does it come up maybe once every five years, but I don't want to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I did donate a lot of my clothes recently, um, like three trash bags full of clothes, so a lot of clothes, and I still have more and it still doesn't all fit in the drawers and the closet and the closet's like 90% mine. There's like 10% that's Hanoa's and like he has his own drawers too. But yeah, I just, uh, it's just a struggle to get it put away because there's nowhere to put it. But I don't want to get rid of it. But I love it. But I'm probably not going to wear all of it. Some of that I'll probably never wear. You know, I have, I have a lot of those pieces of, well, if I lose 100 pounds one day, then this will fit. So I can't get rid yeah. of it. Yeah, I've got I've got a whole line of aspirational clothes where it's like, well, that was a really nice dress I only wore once. So if I if I ever get back to that size again, then I will want it whether or not it ever gets worn again is probably, yeah, we probably know the answer to that. But yeah, the aspirational clothes, plus maybe you don't have as much seasonality, but then we've also got the winter versus summer versus like this shoulder season where, you know, one week it could be sweltering or one day it can be sweltering and then the next day it's freezing again so you have to take it all out it definitely gets colder during the winter here at night but i already have this love for like loungewear i don't know available why. at any moment um, <laughs> way too much loungewear way too many sweatshirts um pullovers hoodies yes they and you know it's bulky too so it takes up a good portion of my closet 
that I need for maybe maybe to wear like 10 times out of the yeah, whole year. For sure. I find too that I think part of my <laughs> issue is that in my head, if I don't wear something, it must be because I don't own it and not simply because I work from home and I don't go anywhere. So, you know, I say, well, I must need to buy jeans because I never wear jeans where really it's that I have a whole drawer full of them. I just don't wear them because mm-hmm. why would I willingly <laughs> wear them if I'm going to sit in my office at home all day? And I mean, I can do chores and leggings just as easily as I can in jeans. I've been hearing so, rooster noises during the interview. Is that your rooster, Katie, or is that yours, Raven? I think that's Ravens. There's some in the background. Okay, that's cool. I just wasn't sure which farm they were coming from. I tuned them out. I don't even notice, honestly. Oh, yeah, no, that's my rooster. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, just for the listeners so they know where the rooster is coming from. Not my house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hoy, we have a lot of wild chickens everywhere you go. Oh, yeah. And you'll see people taking pictures of them, like, in the Walmart parking lot. And we're like, ew, what are you doing? Like, they're everywhere. Like, they're like, we have some legit, like, chickens, you know, that we have in our yard. And then some of them are mixed in with the wild ones that just came out of the bushes. And it just is what it is. <laughs> they do their thing. So, Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? So, I'm cussing and discussing today as a new university um, parent. And the. I love that we have texting now because it's so easy to be able to talk to my kid whenever I want. But also like trying to be chill. Like she's at this point when we're recording like about a week into a week and a half into living away from home for the first time. And like trying not to text too much to be like pretend that I'm chill, but also wanting to be like every, you know, 10 minutes like, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? Are you doing okay? Are you having fun? But I'm just like trying to like save it up, not ask too many questions, still be interested, and then not ask too often to FaceTime because I still want to see your face. So just, yeah, adjusting to the new normal. (laughs) I don't know how well I'm doing, but this is where we're at. So Arlene, does it feel like being back to being like 16 and starting dating and being like, don't call too often, but also have something witty to say, but also (laughs) be chill? Yeah, be chill. Yeah, be chill, but you want to be supportive and make sure that they know that you're always there and you're available should they ever want to talk, but not like desperate. Yes. Yeah, it's like a dating relationship. That's what parenting teens is like. Just like try and be cool. Maybe they'll want to hang. But if they don't, that's okay too. No big deal. <laughs> I think I'm I'm really glad that I came through that age before cell phones and texting and such were a thing. Because as hard as it was for me to be, I mean, for all of you who know how not chill I am at 42, imagine what I was like at 16. You were not chill. Okay. Now imagine what I would have been like (laughs) if I'd been able to text at 16. Look out, everybody. I'm sure I was horrifying enough. I'm horrifying enough now. (laughs) Um, But yes, I'm very glad that it was harder to play. It was easier to play hard to get. Yeah. Yes. And there wasn't evidence of all the things we did. Yeah. Plenty, yeah. And none of it's on Facebook. Thank God. Yeah, for that. that's right. So thank you so much, Raven, for joining us today on the podcast and for getting up so early for us. It was great to meet you and talk to you. If listeners want to follow you online, where should they find you? Oh, I'm right now I'm really just on Instagram. So it's Pu'ukea under underscore. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Underscore farms at underscore 
at um, Instagram. I can't even think. I'm so tired. Um, and Pu'ukea is exactly how it sounds. P-U-U-K-E-A. Um, and then there's no Akina or apostrophe in between the youth um, on my Instagram page. And then if you wanted to support Maui Hub, they don't ship anything. But if you are on vacation in Maui and so inclined to plan ahead, I give you props. And if you wanted to order food from Maui Hub, you could find me on there. Um, yeah, if you wanted to try some different indigenous local foods to Hawaii, I would check me out on there because we have some different stuff on there. Um, Gmail is putukeafarms at gmail.com. And that's really it at the moment. I have a YouTube. I'm not active on there, but pretty much just Instagram right now. That's perfect. Thank you. And we'll definitely include that and some of the other resources that you shared with us earlier in the episode. We'll put those in the show notes. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Raven. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.